Well, today I've uh, titled sermon before us, Detecting Spiritual Dangers, Detecting Spiritual Dangers. And it's just a fact of life that some dangers are easy to spot and some are not. Some are obvious dangers and some are hidden dangers. For example, if you were driving down the uh, a, a highway and there was a tree that had fallen right in front of it, hopefully it wasn't behind a blind curve, uh, it would be obvious to you. You'd see it right in front of you. There's something that's blocking your way. Or for those of you who maybe were trying to uh, uh, f- find your way to uh, Christmas lights and out to Loma last night, you found uh, blocked roads that are right in front of you. But the reality is that there's things that are, that are easy to spot that are right in front. But there are other dangers that are not so easy. For example, if you've had the unfortunate uh, occasion of experiencing food poisoning, uh, you ate at that restaurant not knowing that there was something there in that food that was going to make you as sick as a dog, but it, is, it was undetectable, but the damage was done. Well, the reality, uh, that reality is true in our spiritual lives as well, is that there are some dangers that are obvious and some that are not. There are some that we know to avoid and we can see from afar off and there's others that can creep in almost imperceptibly and they're dangers that we've got to have a heightened view towards, a, a danger that we've got to be extra careful to be on spot. For example, there is fa- a, a, an array of false religions that are out there. And as we look around and we can see the different religions that are there and the doctrines they put forward, it can be pretty obvious to us that that is falsehood, that isn't right, that is, that is not uh, the way God created the world, that is not the God who made the world, and so we can easily rebuff those claims. But again, there are some spiritual dangers that threaten us that are not as easy to realize. This is the reality of false teaching, the quote-unquote popular Bible teacher who seems to be so popular among our friends or others that we know, and yet as that teacher slowly changes their doctrine, those that listen to it can slowly change the doctrine as well. Or take the practice of, of media and all of the immorality that's portrayed out there. We know at the first go that those things aren't right, but yet we slowly uh, watch it and we allow for it and pretty soon our conscience is numbed by it. The reality is that there are spiritual dangers to which we must be alerted. And these spiritual dangers can destroy our lives, they can destroy our ministries, they can destroy churches, they can destroy families. And so, therefore, it is crucial that we learn how to detect these spiritual dangers that threaten us. And there can be devastating consequences if we don't. And our text this morning uh, is going to help us to do that, to help us to detect the spiritual dangers that threaten us. And so I invite you to turn with me in your personal copy of God's Word to the book of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're we're looking this morning in Luke 22, verses uh, 21 through 30. As we continue to exposit our way through the book of Luke, we are find ourselves in the upper room. Last week we looked at how Jesus uh, instituted the Lord's Supper. He celebrated Passover with his disciples and he uh, began and had this yearly feast with them. But it's in 
having that Passover meal that he did something amazing. He transformed it for the Christian church and he transformed it into the meal that you and I celebrate as communion. And we had the privilege of doing that together last week. As Jesus did that, Again, we saw last week the the revealing of Christ's heart. We saw him give of himself as he revealed his love for his people, love for his disciples, his love to be with them, his love in sacrificing himself for them. He told them that his body and his blood would be given for them as he inaugurated the new covenant. Well, it's after Jesus revealed his heart that we're gonna see in our text this morning the disciples' hearts revealed. And in that, we're gonna learn to detect of spiritual danger. So let's begin by reading our text before us, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 22. It says, but behold, Jesus speaking, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves." For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God Bless its truths in all our hearts this morning. Well, as we look in these verses this morning and see the disciples' hearts revealed, we're going to see two spiritual dangers that we need to avoid, two spiritual dangers that we must seek to detect in our own hearts so that we will not fall prey to them. Now, Jesus, the, the, there's a recounting here of the events that happened, but I believe as Luke arranged this material, he saw the, the need for this material to be here to, to prove a warning and a teaching to the church that followed. And in that, we're going to see these spiritual dangers. And so let's begin by looking in verses 21 to 23 at the first spiritual danger, and that is the danger of spiritual apostasy. The danger of spiritual apostasy in verses 21 through 23. These are the verses in which Jesus reveals Judas's betrayal. And here we, his name is not mentioned in these verses, but we have already met Judas, haven't we? In the earlier part of this chapter, we met Judas as he himself was then filled with Satan and he went to the Jewish authorities and he offered to deliver Jesus unto them for money. And we talked earlier as we went through that text that it seems best to understand the simple motive of Judas's heart was simply for greed. He was hungry for money. He kept the money purse, as John tells us in John 12, and he would often pilfer out of that. And so out of a simple desire for greed, he then saw an opportunity to betray Jesus and to get a little extra cash. And so he made an agreement with the chief priests. 
to deliver Jesus over to his enemies. But up until this point, Judas believes that his plans are entirely secret to everybody else other than the chief priests. He believes that, that this secret is kept only to him and that nobody else knows it. In fact, he, the very nature of betrayal is that he's doing it secretly so that Jesus himself doesn't know, right? But as we can see that Jesus is not taken off guard. Jesus is not surprised. Jesus knows exactly what's going on and he has been all along. This is the amazing reality. The testimony of the Gospels is that Jesus knew from the beginning of Judas's treacherous heart. He was well aware of where Judas stood. In fact, it was while ministering in Galilee in John chapter 6 that he declares this fact. John 6, 64 says this. It says, but there, Jesus speaking, but there are some of you who do not believe. And then in parentheses, uh, John, the, the author says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. And a few verses later in John 6, verses 70 and 71, it says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Jesus knew. And yet even here in John 6, when he says that one of you is a devil, the disciples didn't think much of it. They didn't uh, begin to suspiciously think of one another. They continued on as we see at, the, at this point at the Lord's table that it's at this point that they begin to question who it might be. And so it's here at the Last Supper the very scene that we're covering here, that John 13 records these words of Jesus. It says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus knew that Judas had a plan to betray him. In addition to this, you could add up the three times recorded in the Gospel of Luke in which Jesus predicted his own death. John chapter, or Luke 9, 22, Luke 9, 44, and then Luke 18, 31 through 33, all describe Jesus saying, the Son of Man will be delivered up. Delivered up. It doesn't say that the Son of Man will be arrested. It doesn't say the, 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 the chief priests are going to come and get me. It says that the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests, indicating that someone is going to have to deliver him to the chief priests. Jesus knew who that was. And yet, even though Jesus knew that Judas was corrupt and he would betray him, the best we can tell is that he did not give any signs that he treated Judas any differently, which is, which is amazing when you think about it. How would your behavior change towards somebody if you knew that they were going to stab you in the back, figuratively or literally? if you knew that they were going to turn against you, if they were going to betray your trust, your confidence, your affection, that you brought them in, that you told them everything about yourself, that you, that you trusted them more than anybody else, and yet you knew that they were going to turn, wouldn't it be extremely easy to treat them differently? And yet it seems like Jesus did none of that. Jesus sent him out as an apostle on a mission. He taught them, taught the disciples and included Judas in all of that. We have to believe that Jesus wasn't stingy. 
in his affection for Judas these three and a half years. He didn't give him a cold shoulder. He did nothing to seek to show any different treatment towards Judas. Now, before we look at Jesus' words, specifically here in Luke 22, 21 to 23, I need to say a word about the placement of these words. Because if you compare this, uh, these words with where they also lie in the other Gospels, particularly Matthew and Mark, um, there's some discrepancy, it looks like, about where and when Jesus actually said these words. Here in Luke, it's very clear that Jesus had the Passover meal, and then here, as we're looking at in verse 21, then he identifies Judas as the betrayer. So it's meal, then uh, a revealing of the betrayer. But if you look at Matthew and Mark, it's very clear that first Jesus reveals the betrayer, and then he institutes the Passover, institutes the Lord's Supper. I think the best way to harmonize, because we believe that the scriptures are inspired, that there's no mistakes that are found in the scriptures, and that these, uh, they don't contradict each other, that the gospel accounts are merely four different perspectives about the same thing, and that God doesn't contradict contradict himself. And so how do we understand these passages to harmonize? Well, I think it's clear that in Luke's gospel, he didn't always arrange everything exactly chronologically. And and so I believe it's best, along with uh, most evangelical scholars, to see that Matthew and Mark preserve the original order. That Judas was outed, and then he left the upper room, and then Jesus, with the remaining 11, instituted the Lord's Supper with them. Luke, why did he write it the way that he did? Well, it seems that he wanted to bring forward the Lord's Supper. He wanted to, he talked about the preparing the Passover, and then he talks about the celebrating the Passover, shows that meal, highlights that as on the front end, and then he uses the rest of chapter 22, the rest of this time in the upper room, to talk about this, these final words that Jesus have with, with his disciples. And so he, he seems to group all the other material after the supper. And this is his choice as, a, as the author of compiling this narrative. He has a certain authorial intent in the way that he's arranging this material. And so this means that the words that we have here in Luke 21 through 20, uh, uh, verses 21 through 23 uh, took place before the, the, the institution of the Lord's Supper, a little bit earlier in the evening. And again, it was after he dismissed Judas John chapter 13 records that he says to him, whatever you must do, do quickly. And Judas leaves and it's nighttime and the rest of the disciples have no idea why he's leaving. They don't suspect anything. They say, they thought that he had to go make some more preparations for the Passover. They thought that he had to go take care of some other business. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew, Jesus knew then that he had a limited amount of time. The clock was ticking. As soon as Judas left, he was going to go and get the Jewish authorities who were likely uh, there in another part of the city. So he had to travel to go get them. And then they had to go get the Roman cohort to be able to go then arrest Jesus. And so Jesus knew he had a ticking clock to his remaining time with his disciples. He's going to get everything in that he needs to before they catch up with him. And so, Luke, having highlighted the Lord's Last Supper, he now summarizes this exchange with Judas. Luke wants us, this is the most abbreviated account here in Luke. Matthew and Mark have more detail. 
But Luke simply wants to mention the fact that uh, showing that Jesus knows that Judas will betray him. And so as we, again, blend these together, John 13, verse 21, tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit. And then he dropped this bomb upon his disciples that we see in verse 21. Look at it with me, verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Again, I could have imagined this, this, how this would have landed with this group of disciples. They had given their lives to this teacher. They had spent their lives with him. And they're enjoying this great Passover meal that Jesus has, in, uh, has, has planned for them. And now as they're sitting there enjoying this meal, reclining at table, Jesus drops this bomb that there is one of them there that has, is there to betray him. He's not with them. This, there is someone here who is with the enemy, not with Jesus. And so, after that revelation, we know uh, from the other gospels, they begin to ask, is it I? Who is, who, is it me? And there's this exchange that goes back and forth. Peter has to uh, signal to John, hey, John, could you ask Jesus who it is? And that's what John, Luke here summarizes in verse 23 where it says, and they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. But in between these two verses in verse 22, Jesus makes an incisive statement that we can't miss, we can't afford to miss. He says, verse 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, on one hand, as we look at the first part of that statement, we see that Jesus is a man at peace with what is about to take place. He knows that his fate is determined by God. The cross is not plan B. He knows that it is going to end in the cross and it's been determined by God. It's all part of God's sovereign plan. And so we need to remember, friends, that the cross is not, was not an accident. This was not uh, plan B. This was plan A all along. And so amazingly, Jesus, who was in perfect harmony with his Father in heaven, neither he nor his Father were wringing their hands or nervous about how this could be. They weren't worried about what was about to happen. They not only knew how this would end up, but they had planned it this way. In other words, they didn't just know what other people were going to do, but they sovereignly directed events to go this direction because this is what they wanted. But we have two phrases here in verse 22. One is that the Son of Man goes as it's been determined. We can uh, suppose by God, how is it God the sovereign one who has determined these things? But then look at the second half. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Just because God is sovereign of this event, just because he has ordained these things does not mean that Judas is off the hook. Judas is guilty. He is culpable for his own actions. And this is the, the amazing wonder of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. They don't cancel each other out in Scripture. Jesus can say it blatantly and put them together in one verse and have no problem saying it. And we've got to learn to get to that point as well, to be able to say the two, God is sovereign and yet we are responsible and they don't contradict. 
Jesus says, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And I believe that this statement does two things. One is that it, it, it uh, announces judgment upon Judas. It announces his, the, the certain judgment that is to come. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed because judgment will surely fall upon him. But not only does it announce judgment, but it also announces sadness on Jesus' heart. In other words, Jesus reveals his heart of sadness for Judas, and I believe that in this, therefore, it functions also as a last chance for Judas to think about what he's going to do. He's saying one last time, woe to you. In other words, don't continue down this. Do you understand the woe that is coming to you? Do you understand the judgment that is coming to you if you continue down this path? Verse 23 says they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who's going to do this. They had no idea. Again, they, the other gospels record, they're all asking, is it I, Lord? Is it I? And here we see in these verses the reality of this apostasy that is found within Jesus' most inner circle. In these few verses, we see the heart of Judas revealed. Again, we just saw Jesus' heart revealed through the Last Supper, but here we see Judas's heart revealed. And, and we, we see that he's not with Christ. He hung around Christ for three and a half years. He ministered alongside him. He, he, he went out on the commission of Christ to reach Israel. And yet, fundamentally at his core, Judas did not know Christ. He was not with him. And so it's here in these few verses where we see the, the heart of Judas revealed at this Passover table in 33 AD that we're put face to face with spiritual apostasy. And this proves, the story of Judas proves to be a warning for disciples of every generation. It proves to be a warning for every generation of believers as we read this account because for something so tragic to surface among Jesus' very own disciples is extremely sobering for us. For those that may not know, the word apostasy is given to those who fall away from the faith. The word uh, apostasy comes from a Greek word that literally means to fall away. From those who defect from the Christian faith. It describes people who once claimed to follow Jesus and then reject him and his gospel. The book of Hebrews has several warnings for those who are threatening to walk away. They, they are teetering and they think they might jettison Jesus and go back to the Mosaic law. And so the book of Hebrews has several warnings against such falling away. And this condition of apostasy finds no parallel. There is nothing more dreadful or more devastating than one who has, has known Christ, who's been around the Christian teaching and yet no longer walks according to it and has stiff-armed it completely. Indeed, our hearts break for individuals who have turned from the living God to serve idols, whether that be uh, religious idols or whether they be secular idols. They are all false gods. But we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus has prepared us for this reality. 
Jesus understands the pain of losing those who are close to spiritual defection. Jesus knew that we would face this in the church age. You remember the parable of the soils? He taught that early on in his ministry. Remember, he talks about the sower went out to sow his seed and some seed fell upon and he gives four different descriptions of soils. Well, each of those soils represented four different kinds of hearts that the gospel seed would land upon. And in the first three hearts, the first three soils representing three kinds of human hearts, it looks like the gospel takes root. It looks like this person believes. And it begins to grow, but over time it proves that there is not faith. It proves that they did not believe because the true condition of their heart is revealed. It's amazing that among the four different hearts, you'd kind of suspect that uh, Jesus would, would tell us that maybe uh, there's only one that defects, but there's three that receive it. But he says that in the end, there's really only one kind of soil that receives the word and endures to the end. The other three look deceiving, but they ultimately prove to not be true. And so even though Jesus prepared us for this reality, it's still shocking, sad, and painful when it happens to those we love and to those around us. And it may not even be someone that we personally know. It may be a public Christian, quote-unquote Christian figure that we've read their books, we've, we've, we've heard them speak, and then they turn their back on it all. It's painful. But as we look at this apostasy that is described here by Judas, there's three important truths regarding apostasy that I want us to uh, remember this morning. Three important truths regarding apostasy as we examine this this morning. And the first is this, that no Christian can lose their salvation. No true Christian can lose their salvation. The great work of salvation that is described all throughout the New Testament and, is, and particularly is, is uh, opened up for us through the writings of the Apostle Paul is that in the gospel, in believing the gospel, the triune God has worked to save an individual. God beforehand has elected us unto salvation. Then Jesus Christ came, as we are studying even now here in the Gospels and celebrating that Christmas, that Christ came in his first advent and he then went to the cross and he bore the sins of his people, paid for them in full, accomplished redemption. But then that redemption needed to be applied to each and every heart that had been elected before the foundation of the world. And that application of the redemption happened through the Spirit. And as the Spirit works in a human heart to cause us to believe, we then are united to Christ by faith. This is the great and marvelous mystery that Paul reveals in his letters is that we have been united to Jesus Christ. There is a fusing, there is a, a union there that we cannot separate. There is an exchange that has happened in which our sin has gone to Christ. We have received his righteousness and we have been united to Christ. Therefore, we experience eternal life in the here and now because we know the living God through Jesus Christ and we will experience eternal life forevermore. This is the promised glory for the believer. And friends, there is nothing in this world that can undo that. There is nothing that we can do that can undo that. Once we have been saved in Christ, that is forever secure. 
Jesus said that there is no one that can snatch us out of our father's, his father's hand. And Jesus made it very clear. I have saved them. They shall never perish. They shall have eternal life. And there is no one that can snatch them out of my father's hand. And friends, that means that we can't snatch ourselves out of the father's hand, okay? We need to remember that. Eternal life is guaranteed and we will never perish, praise God. So then what do we do with those who have walked away from the faith? Well, 1 John 2.19 is extremely insightful for us in this point. The apostle John says this in 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is the fundamental truth of apostasy, is that those who walk away from the faith show that they never truly believed to begin with. And again, we might go, yeah, but... I heard their testimony. But yeah, I read their books, but I, but I heard their sermons. Friends, we gotta go back to the parable of the soils and remember that there's some of those that sprout up and they look really good and they sound really good. But what is the distinguishing mark of those who are truly saved? It's endurance. It's perseverance. That's what John says here. If they would have been truly of us, of the Lord, of Christ, have fellowship with the Son, they would have continued with us, John says. And that's exactly what Jesus says in the parable of the soils, is that the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's the one who believes, not just in a moment, not just in a flash in the pan, but those who continue to believe and continue to trust and continue to abide in Christ. That's why it matters how you begin. But it, in one sense, you could say it matters more how you finish. We can't just uh, get our hands stamped and think we're good. We've got to continue to believe and trust in the Lord all the way through our Christian life. And the great reality is, is that that perseverance doesn't depend on us. It's God who keeps us. When we get before the throne and we get to see Christ, it's not saying, wow, I'm so good, I made it all the way to the end. Boom, yeah. No, how foolish. We'd say, if it was up to me, I wouldn't have made it one step. If it was up to me, there's no way I'd make it here. Praise be to you, O Christ, that you kept me, that you saved me, that you preserved me through life's fearful path, that you preserved me through all the temptations, you preserved me through all the trials, you preserved me through all the suffering, and you kept me, and you held on to me. So we need to remember that First of all, no Christian can lose their salvation, but there's a second truth, important truth regarding apostasy we've got to remember, and that is that every believer must examine himself. Every believer must examine himself. Paul makes this clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And so he says, listen, Church, you've got to examine yourselves. You've got to make sure that you're in the faith. This is not something that you can assume. And this is an important word for everyone who comes to church on a regular basis, everyone who hears the gospel, everyone who, who claims to follow Jesus. We can't ever assume this to be the case. We need to continue to examine ourselves. Again, the parable of the soils puts us on notice that there are those who look like Christians and yet they're not. This should sober us. 
It should sober us that it's possible to sound like a follower of Christ and yet not truly believe. And this is why we must examine ourselves. We don't want to be deceived. We want our hearts to be truly trusting in Christ. Now, how can people be led into apostasy? I believe there's two primary ways that believers, so-called believers, can be led into apostasy and ultimately jettisoning the faith. The first means that, 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 can be, that can cause people to drift away from the faith, to fall away, is doctrinal demise. I'm calling doctrinal demise. And this is the classic case of those who hear alternative teaching to the Christian doctrine and they begin to imbibe it and they ultimately walk away from it. You can think of the college student who grew up in the church and then goes off to university and then they're swayed by intellectual attacks on the Bible. And their fundamental beliefs about Christ, salvation, the afterlife, and sin are all shifted and changed. And they're convinced to no longer believe the God who made them, but they then believe their own reasoning. So first can come through to purely at the idea level, that people can hear different ideas and they then begin to shift and believe those ideas rather than believe the truth of God's word. So that's doctrinal demise, but there's a second way and it's a little more insidious and it's, it's through ethical drift. So-called believers can slide into apostasy through ethical drift. This happens by giving in to sin more and more. They try to then justify it. Well, it's not quite what Paul meant when he, when he said sin. In other words, the behavior shifts and then the, be, the beliefs follow afterward. This is extremely common. Behavior changes and then beliefs follow. Beliefs change after that. And so this is the person whose life of immorality ultimately draws them away from the living God. They love their sin more than they love the truth of God's word. They believe the lie that life is found in giving into one's flesh, into following one's heart, into doing what feels good because that's what the world offers and it seems like they're having a great time. And eventually, sadly, their whole perspective on God, salvation, and their own fundamental problem in their heart changes. And I also need to say that this can often happen not just in the person who's giving into the sin, but this can happen in the family members around that person. As, as someone uh, begin, in their family begins to follow after a certain kind of sinful lifestyle, the, the parents and the siblings can begin to change their views of doctrine, begin to change their views of God's word based upon the behavior of that, of that family member. We see this all around us. As a grown child, for example, comes out as a, as a homosexual and before you know it, the parents and the siblings have changed their position on sin and the need for repentance. This, my friends, is a slippery slope of apostasy. Beginning to abandon God's word. Why do, I, why do we say this? Why do we look into this this morning? Well, I tell you this so that by God's grace, each one of us might be protected from falling away. My prayer is that there is no one here who are listening to the words of my voice that would walk away from Jesus Christ, that all of you would walk faithfully with him all of your days. And so I call you today to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. 
to see whether you know the living God. Not to assume just because of your church attendance, not to assume simply because of your, what your family has done for a number of years, but to ask, have you personally seen the sin in your own heart? Have you seen that your sin is offense before a holy God? Have you seen that the wages of your sin is death and that the only hope for you is salvation through Jesus Christ? Have you, have you trusted him alone? Have you personally trusted him? Not a spouse, not a parent, but have you trusted in Jesus Christ so that every, if everyone was stripped away and it was just you and the Lord, that you know that you're right with him? Jesus Christ has provided a way so that every single person might be saved, that they might trust in him. But we must repent and believe. So church, we can't allow the devil a foothold in our life. Not allow these slippery slopes to begin. We must be repenting of our sin daily. Not continuing to remain to be hardened in the deceitfulness of sin as Hebrew warns, Hebrews warns against. Now with that said, as I say we need to examine ourselves, I also need to say, as uh, I alluded to earlier, is that Jesus Christ wants all of his people to be assured of their salvation. In other words, the command to examine ourselves is not a, a command for us to all live in doubt, for us to all live in in this lacking of assurance. No, Jesus wants us to live confidently in the salvation that he purchased for us. He wants us to live joyfully in what he's done. And so all true believers can take this exhortation to examine ourselves and we look and we examine and we pray and we, we find that we indeed are anchored to the rock. Where does our confidence lie? Where, does our assurance, where is our assurance found? It's found in Jesus Christ. He is the rock of our salvation. We don't look to our behavior as the confidence. We don't look to our obedience as our assurance. We look to Christ's righteousness as our assurance. We look to his obedience as our assurance. It's because he lived the perfect life. His righteousness was perfect and that righteousness was credited to us in the gospel that we are able to have assurance that one day when we stand before the Lord and we look him in the face and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And we say, because I've trusted in your son. It's not because of me. If it was up to me, I would, I would fail. I'd be cast out instantly. But because I've trusted in your son, he paid it all. It's all to him I owe. We must look to Christ and his righteousness and his redemption. As the other hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. All other ground is shifting sand. That includes your own Christian life is shifting sand. We don't find confidence in our, our lives are up and down, but Christ is steady. Too many Christians are looking inward for their assurance. Too many Christians are looking at their own lives and their own feelings and then, do you have enough faith, do I have enough repentance and they're just constantly looking inward rather than looking to Christ and say, what has he done? Who is he? What kind of salvation has he accomplished? What has he done for me? And believing in that, trusting in that and clinging to that. Our assurance does not come from how well we are holding on to Christ but how strongly he holds on to us. 
You no doubt have heard the illustration of walking a child across the street. If I were to walk one of my children across the street holding their hand, what enables them to get safely across the road? Well, they might argue, well, Daddy, I held onto your hand really tight. And so I made sure I didn't break free and I, and I was, was holding on tightly and that's why I got safely across the road. But of course, all, every parent knows that our grip is stronger than our child's. That even if that child's grip loosens, we still have a hold on it, don't we? And the same is true in the Christian life, friends. We cling to Christ. We trust in him. We believe in him. And yet, it is not our grip upon Christ that secures us. Ultimately, it is his grip upon us. And so, we must examine ourselves. But the point of examining ourselves is not to go in this great uh, period of introspection to stay there in this period of doubt, but rather to find our assurance in Jesus Christ, to find that there can be no hope other than in him. That is how we must protect against the spiritual danger of apostasy. It begins in little choices. It begins in little compromises. It begins in little temptations. But slowly and surely, we find there is drift over, away, and away. And so let me just say, if you're here this morning and you are beginning to feel that drift, I want to tell you the third and final truth about apostasy that you need to hear this morning, and that is this, that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Jesus hadn't given up on Judas, and he hasn't given up on anyone else either. All who are still living have a chance to repent and to turn from their ways. All those who have walked away from the faith can come back. We can take a thousand steps away from Jesus, but it only takes one to come back. The last chapter's not been written. And so if you're here this morning, you feel like you're far from Christ, turn back to him today. Trust and believe in him. Rekindle what you once knew. And for all of those of you who are praying for those who currently do not believe, those who maybe grew up in your house and at one time they profess faith but today they don't. Have hope. Continue to pray. Continue to trust that Jesus would open their eyes, that their hearts would be softened, that they would recognize the error of their ways and to remember that the last chapter has not been written. Jesus didn't give up on Judas. He hasn't given up on anyone else either. Jesus has made a way for everyone to find forgiveness, whether that is those who have lived in immorality before they learned about Jesus or whether they lived in immorality after they learned about Jesus. There is forgiveness sufficient. There is blood that is sufficient to wash us all clean. And that is the amazing truth of the gospel. Amen? Well, I was going to look at two dangers this morning, but we only got through one. So that means we're going to need to come back next week to look at the second one. Um, but that one's going to be good too. Uh, it's it's going uh, to be helpful for us. So let's uh, close uh, now in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the, this text that helps us to detect the spiritual danger of spiritual hypocrisy, spiritual apostasy rather. 
Oh, this is such a, a serious danger. We're talking about spiritual life and death. We're talking about heaven or hell. And so, Father, I pray that if there are those this morning who are here who are hardened against the truth, that you would soften their hearts this morning, that you would help them to see that they are on the road to destruction. For as wide as the path may seem, for as well-populated with friends it might seem, its end is destruction. Oh, Father, may you be merciful to them. May you help them to see what is found in Christ and him alone, eternal life. And I pray for all of us, Father, that this warning would be helpful for us to check our own hearts, to not allow sin a foothold, that we would not allow certain compromises and sins to continue, but that we would seek to repent of those daily, that we would keep a right relationship with you. And we thank you, Father, for your daily upholding of us. And for that, we give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.